So we're in the second week, second chapter, second week, in a series on the tiny little New Old Testament book of Jonah. And I mentioned last week that Jonah is a part of a section of Scripture called the Minor Prophets, 12 books at the end of the Old Testament, uh, called Minor Prophets because they are, for two reasons, they're one, of, one being that they're generally smaller than the books we call the Major Prophets, but they're also, we know uh, very little about the, the, the authors of these books or the subjects of these books. And I mentioned how that Jonah is the exception. Almost anybody, you could do a man on the street interview and find that most everybody has heard at least the story of Jonah. And so uh, last week was the, uh, by far the most familiar part of the story, Jonah uh, the, the way it begins. And, and if you'll recall, we saw how Jonah last week had been commanded by God to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, I didn't focus on this too much last week, but, but Nineveh, wa, Nineveh was the, the capital of Assyria, which was one of the most powerful nations on earth at the time, terrorizing all the part of the world that uh, that Israel was a part of, and, and they were Israel's sworn enemies. So for God to command Jonah to go bring a message from him to Nineveh would be like, and I want you to get this, would be like the voice of the Lord speaking to you this morning and saying, I want you to go preach my word to Al-Qaeda. Now think about that. Raise your hand if you would be fully comfortable with that assignment. <laughs> All right, so we have one. Anybody else want to join him? So, the, so the uh, so you have this idea of of the, these vicious, bloodthirsty, terrible enemies of God and God's people, and God says, "That's where I want you to go. That's your assignment." So he's commanded to go to Nineveh and to call out against it. Those are God's word because of the great sinfulness that exists there. The, the, they are told one thing that, that, that he's to, or he's told one thing to publicly declare God's wrath on the Ninevites. Soon, according to this word, his holy judgment is going to be poured out against the city because of their wickedness. But we see instead of obeying, for some reason, Jonah ran as far as he possibly could in the opposite direction. He took a boat towards Tarshish. And, 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 and he did so, the scriptures tell us, to flee from the presence of the Lord. And we talked about last week, he was not just shirking his duty, he was shirking his God. But God wouldn't abandon his purposes. So the Bible says, in order to get this fool's attention, he hurled a great wind at the prophet. He wound up and sent this great storm and, and this mighty tempest on the sea resulted. And God wanted Jonah to know that he meant business. Have any of you ever had the privilege of hearing God say loudly to you, I mean business? Raise your hand. Anybody? A few of you? God meant business, but God being merciful was offering Jonah a chance to repent and reminding him of his need for repentance by this great storm. But furthermore, it wasn't just that Jonah was in trouble. His stubbornness affected other people. We saw that last week. The, the pagan sailors, far from God on the boat, rode hard against the waves. 
But they were expert sailors. But, but they rode and they rode to no avail. And they eventually found themselves crying out to any God up there or around them that would hear them. To, they could, anything they could think of that might be able to calm this storm. But when that didn't work, all of their efforts failed. They went looking for their passenger. Hey, didn't we take on a guy back there at Joppa? Did we take somebody on this boat? When they found him, he was sleeping and he was unconcerned that other lives were in jeopardy. The captain woke him up and demanded that he do what they were doing, to call on his God as well. When the, the, when the sailors soon cast lots in order to find out who'd caused all this trouble for them, guess who the lot fell to? It Well, it fell to Jonah. And he, and he told them who he was and what he'd done. And they asked him what they should do to him to make the storm stop. If he's the, the problem, how do, we, how do we get to the root of this problem? But instead of saying, I've, I've really screwed this up, guys. I need to repent. We need to turn this ship around. Instead of repenting for his disobedience and heading to Nineveh like God had commanded, he told them to throw him overboard in order to appease God's wrath. This is the most curious part of chapter 1. The Jonah chose to die rather than submit to what God had said. This is not new to the people of God. In Ezekiel chapter 3, the Lord himself says to his people, he says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? At first the sailors resisted and they tried to row even harder against the storm. But eventually, seeing that that was not going to work, they relented, they repented of what they were about to do, and they tossed Jonah out of the boat and immediately the storm ceased. The sailors here amazed by God's power over creation, God's power over human affairs, abandon their idols and they offer sacrifices and they make vows to the true God who had spared their lives in an act of absolutely unmerited mercy. And this is where we picked up the story this morning. That's what the Bible says. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The word appointed indicates that Jonah wasn't just in the right place at the right time, falling into the right place in the ocean, but God had orchestrated these events. God was fully in control of the circumstances. God, the king of everything, the creator of of the sea and dry land, as Jonah told the sailors that he was, would ensure that that his purposes worked out out exactly like he had had intended. And Jonah thought that he could circumvent God's decree for his life by having the sailors toss him overboard. But God, listen to me carefully, God cannot be so easily avoided or ignored. He will not just turn a blind eye to our reluctance, our disobedience, our defiance. He will not do it. And Jonah found that out. I said this last week, we don't know of a fish big enough, or more importantly, with stomach acids mild enough for a man to survive in his belly for three days. But what you got to get from the story is that God provided one. Let me let you in on a little secret. God can provide anything he needs to accomplish his purposes. 
He is not limited by anything at all. And so God provides this fish and he shows absolute control over every situation and every outcome by doing so, even when Jonah acts contrary to what he's commanded. I love this, this, this idea that God is not limited. Some people really think that they're poking God in the eye by saying no to him. But what I want you to hear this morning One of the key things I want you to hear is that whenever you defy God, you are not working against his purposes ultimately, but ultimately you are working right into his purposes. Can I prove that to you by scripture? Would you guys be okay with that? I've shared this with you before. Psalms 51, verse 4, Psalms 51, uh, Paul read it to us last week, is actually a scripture of God's, um, of David's repentance towards God after his act of, of adultery. Big time sin. He added murder to that. Big time sin. But listen to what he says. Verse 4 of this, uh, of this important chapter. He says, against you, you only talking to God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now pay close attention to the next two words. I, I, I did evil in your sight so that, in other words, to lead to this end, so that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What does that mean? So that. What he's saying is that even our sin works to prove the majesty of God by showing that there is a wide margin between his holiness and our fallenness it's a beautiful it it always even when we fall to the worst sin all it's doing is showing how much different god is than us and thereby giving him glory it spotlights the consistent rightness of his judgments when we when we are in sin the the spotlight goes on how holy god is and his judgments that he's pronounced but I want you to see this. We can talk about God's judgment. We can talk about Jonah's sin. But I want you to know this morning that God did not send a fish to destroy or even to merely judge that prophet. He sent that fish to save his life. Now think about that for a minute. Some of you up until this point familiar with the story might have been thinking that Jonah was in big trouble and, and so God threw him in jail in a fish's belly for a few days to kind of sober up. But that's not what's happening here. Jonah had literally thumbed his nose in the face of God and yet God rescues him from an absolutely impossible situation through a miracle. God appointed a fish. Once again, said this last week, Jonah is not a story. Jonah is a mirror. Jonah is a, is the kind of a book in the Bible. When you open it up, if you're honest with yourself, you can only see yourself within its pages. I didn't get a single amen on that point. We are all Jonah. Through our own impurity, through our self-will, through our deceit, through our greed, through our impatience, through our hatred, through our unforgiveness, we have thumbed our nose at God. But because 
of his great mercy. He has provided a rescue for us by the most illogical and impossible means. The death of his son on the cross. See, Jonah never, as he sailed over the edge of that ship and splashed down into the ocean waves, he never could have imagined that his rescue would come from the briny deep. (laughs) And the Jews of Jesus' time, way back in the first century, never imagined that God himself would become man. That he would, as man, bear the sins of humanity on the cross and thereby reconcile God and humanity for all time. They never saw it coming. So the next thing we see in chapter 2 Right at the beginning it says, then, then is a real important word. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. You you notice what Jonah wasn't doing on the boat? You notice that Jonah was so bitter with God that he preferred self-annihilation to heavenly communication? There was no prayer on the boat. So God put him in a place where he had little else to do, than to talk to God who had mercifully mercifully saved him. Let me tell you something. There's not a lot of entertainment options in the belly of a whale. So he talks to God. If I can just give you a little honest testimony here, I have lost count of the times where God has placed me smack in the middle of circumstances that were too big for me, or moved me out of a place of my own comfortable disobedience to him by placing me in the belly of my own theoretical fish where I finally, trapped in that place, called out to him. I don't suppose there's anybody in this room who can relate to that, is there? You know the times I'm talking about. You know them. That time when the diagnosis comes. That time when the job waves bye-bye. That time when the kids you love and have poured into venture into self-destructive sin. That time when you're abandoned or betrayed by someone you deeply love. It's in those times, in those places, you're more ready to pray. It's, It's in those times when you're ready to rediscover the infinite mercy of a God who loves you Yet a God whom you have neglected, maybe even rebelled against, it is His love, listen to me, it is His love and not His judgment that got you there. He didn't put you in the belly of the fish to destroy you. He put you in the belly of the fish to save your life. Some of you may be in the belly of a great fish right now. Let me warn you, instead of using that time to call out to God, you're angry with Him and you're cursing Him. Why have you done this to me? Why am I here? Can I remind you what the psalmist said in Psalm 86? He said, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. 
I have a thing that I've said for years. It's a mantra, literally, of mine. That God is good, God is always good, and God is never not good. No matter how deeply you are tucked away into the belly of the whale, God is never not good. And so the psalmist says he's good and he's forgiving. And he says, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So we sit there in the bellies of our great fish and we don't call out to him. Jonah discovered the truth of this psalm in the great fish. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Notice several things about Jonah's prayer here. First, he says he called to the Lord and was answered. As I said earlier, when did he call to the Lord? Not on the ship. Not before he splashed into the sea. He only cried out to the Lord in the belly of the fish that that it was only there that he turned to God and realized that God had saved him in his infinite mercy. Next, he says he called to God out of the belly of Sheol. Now, Sheol, you may not be familiar with that word. It's the Hebrew name for the place of the dead. Oftentimes, it is kind of uh, uh, wrongly translated as hell, the place of judgment. But that doesn't really capture the meaning of the word. Sheol is simply the grave. It's the place where life and hope come to an end. The place which people do not routinely come back from. But Jonah, though he didn't literally die, he realizes that without God's intervention, the belly of that fish would have been his tomb. But mercy changed everything. He didn't say out of the belly of a fish. He says out of the belly of the grave I called to you. Lastly, I want you to see this. He doesn't credit the the place he's in to some impersonal storm, some freak accident. He doesn't credit it to sailors who were out of options, so tossed him over the edge. He doesn't even uh, credit the situation to his own disobedience. And defiance, he says to God, listen to these words, he says to God, you cast me into the deep. Wait, I I thought the sailors cast him into the deep. How did he give credit to God for that? Somebody's beginning to realize who's really in charge here, isn't he? You cast me into the deep. Your waves and billows passed over me. Only in the belly of the great fish could Jonah see God's overriding sovereign hand in everything. Then I said, Jonah, speaking, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Jonah thought the sea would be the end of him. As he sunk Beneath the waves and eventually into the mouth of the fish, surely he thought that he was a goner. But in this forlorn place, this desolate, hopeless place, he contemplates the mercy of God and hope is reborn. He describes his, his plight very poetically. I don't know if I could use such flowery language in the belly of a great fish. But he does so very poetically. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. 
The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Can I get real personal and ask you some questions here? Have you ever felt closed in on? Have you ever felt surrounded? Have you ever felt choked out by life as you came face to face with rock bottom? Jonah again emphasizes the finality of his predicament by saying the bars closed upon me forever. Have you ever been at such a loss for hope that you said, this is it. The bars are closing forever. This is all I got. There's nothing more. Have you ever felt this way? Is there someone here honest enough to say that you feel this way this morning? Jonah remembers that when all seems lost, when the bars are closing over him forever, he, he, he remembers that it's not over until God himself rings the bell. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now notice the contradiction there. The bars have closed over me forever, but oh, you brought my life up out of the pit. Jonah tells us what makes the difference. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. If you find yourself in this kind of distress today, feeling just like Jonah, I only have one piece of counsel for you, and that is to remember the Lord. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Recall all that you've heard about Him. Put your trust in Him. Remember Him. Remember what He has done for you on the cross. Remember how death could not hold Him. Remember all those things. If you are a believer, look back to when you did learn of Him and know Him. And remember how you found Him to be altogether lovely. How you found Him to be more precious than gold. How you found to be a, found Him to be a God whose steadfast love endures forever. And let me remind you that He has not changed. He is still the same God. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. We remember the Lord actively by crying out to him in prayer calling out to him for the love and the mercy that the psalmist wrote about it's not enough listen to me it's not enough to believe in god religiously james the 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 apostle in the new testament famously says even the demons believe Your belief in God is meaningless if it's only a religious box that you've checked off that you have some sort of religious belief in God. It's not enough. What God is looking for is an active belief that involves yourself with God, trusting Him in in deep and and real relationship. He makes this point clear in his next line. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols, forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. 
It's really interesting contrast here, what he says here, to what happened on the boat. On the boat, you'll recall that the sailors cast away their idols in, in, the, in the, the, their sheer amazement at the display of God's sovereign power. But Jonah, in that moment, clung to the most insidious idol of all, his own will. He says, nope, I'm not doing what God said, kill me. He was clinging to his will. My way or the highway, God. And God showed him the alternate route. But now he realizes that this is the way, clinging to those idols is the way to lose out on the benefits of God's steadfast love. What does that mean? I've said this to you who are regular attenders here many, many times, but God, listen to me, chisel it into your foreheads. God will not be an afterthought. He will not play second fiddle to anyone or anything. You can have only Him and all of Him, or you can have your idols, but you can never have both. I love the way the 1984 edition of the New International Version puts this scripture. It says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Can you just marinate in that for a second and ponder what that is saying? Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. If I can once again be so terribly transparent with you, I cannot afford to forfeit any grace. I need the grace of the Lord, not every day, but every moment. I need the grace of the Lord to make it through this message, to get through my afternoon, to wake up after I go to sleep tonight. I need the grace of God. So away with all my idols. May all my idols be cast away and cast down that I may have all the grace that's available to me. To be a true true recipient of grace requires that we abandon all other hopes, all other schemes, and throw ourselves daily and completely on God alone. And now Jonah, the prophet of God, the big man, the, the, the major leaguer for Jesus. Now, he shows as much contrition as those newly converted sailors on the boat. Now, he says, I will praise. I will sacrifice. I will vow. All the things those pagan sailors did. The veteran shows as much devotion as the newly minted believers. The final thought of his prayer is one that should be learned early on if you're a follower of Jesus. It shouldn't be learned only by Jonah in the belly of a fish, but by us every single day. And it is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If I couldn't contain you right now if you truly understood the power of that little sentence. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah, this prophet, this disobedient, rebellious prophet, is acknowledging that good works can't get you there. Big donations can't get you there. 
fame, success, health, beauty, a perfect relationship can't get you there. Reliance on those things is a one-way ticket to the belly of a fish for the child of God. Only daily dependence on God makes any difference. What do you mean by daily dependence? I don't mean that God is something you do on Saturday and Sunday. and I mean that, that God is the thing that you realize is the very source of your life, the very fountain of your living, the very, the very, the, the, the very energy of your soul is God alone. And you learn to quickly recognize your, how clingy your hands are to every other thing. And learn quickly to release your grip so that you can have more of Him, more of grace. No more clinging to worthless idols. Worthless idols have no power to save me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation, what is he saying when he says salvation belongs to the Lord? Salvation is ordained by God. Salvation is initiated by God. Salvation is sealed by God and salvation is only completed by God. I I spent the first half of my Christian life under this false impression and this terrible theology that Jesus got me started at the cross and the rest was up to me. Listen, that is never going to get you there. Salvation belongs to the Lord from the very first point to the day you see Him in heaven. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonathan Edwards, the the 18th century preacher, famously said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone. No one is saved. You may think you're saved this morning. Let me tell you something. No one is saved until they have abandoned themselves and all they can do and trusted Jesus alone to do the work. When Jonah acknowledges this, the rescue finally comes. In a very unpleasant way, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's so interesting. In the Word of God... Anytime you see the word vomiting, for a pleasant talk, I'm glad we're not serving lunch today, but vomit, whenever you see somebody, it's always, an, an, a, um, it's always symbolic of disgust. And this is not lost on the story. Jonah's self-will, his defiance, his disobedience got him into the fish. And he, and he realized that, that, that all that brought was disgust, revulsion. Do you remember in, in Revelation chapter 3 when Jesus tells the, uh, the, the church at Laodicea, because you are neither hot nor cold, what will he do? I will vomit you out of my mouth. And so Jonah and all his self-willed represented by that fish is disgusting. It's vomited out so that he can clean up and do the will of the Lord as originally intended. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you find yourself in, in, a, uh, in the belly of a great fish and you cry out, it may not be the most pleasant thing to come out of that fish, but God will deliver you out of that fish. Because He wants you to know that your self-will is never going to get you where you need to go. 
Now, here's a question we asked it. We began asking it last week. Why is this so important? Now, you may never have considered this question. Why is this story even important to us as Christians? What I mean is, New Testament people, we're not, as far as I know, none of us are ethnic Jews in this place. If you are, welcome, but I, I, I don't know that of any ethnic Jews here. So why does this story even matter? There's a lot of problems with this story. First of all, Jonah is by no means a role model. You, you, you hear people say, I want to be like Moses. I want to be like David. No one ever says, I want to be like Jonah. I want to be so disobedient to God that he has to create an animal to eat me. No one says that. He's no role model. And if you think we're done seeing how poor of a role model he is, stay tuned for chapter 4. So what can we possibly gain from this book? Maybe it's just a cautionary tale. You better obey God or you'll get eaten by a fish. Learn your rules. But would it surprise you to know that this little book, tucked in the back of the Old Testament, that this little book constitutes one of the most important biblical signs of the Messiah's work and his victory. Would that surprise you? I said earlier that the first century Jews totally missed what Jesus came to do. Those against him thought he was a blasphemer, an imposter. Those who were for him thought he would use his incredible power to overthrow Caesar and Rome. But guess what? Whether they were for him or whether they were against him, both were wrong. They didn't get it. And once, in this, in this framework, once he was accosted by the Pharisees, fed up with all of his claims, and they wanted proof of his importance. And so what they did, they demanded to see a sign from him. Hey, Jesus, put up or shut up. Now, they had ignored the fact that by this time in the story, Jesus healed multitudes of people, done incredible miracles of creation with bread and fish and, and uh, water and wine. He'd done all those kinds of things. But they're saying, we want to see something, Jesus. We want you to show us a sign that you are who you say that you are. And Jesus' response to that demand is epic. Matthew 29 verse 30, uh, Matthew 12 rather verse 39, he says, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, will rise up at this generation at the the men of I'm sorry the men of Nineveh will rise up at the generation with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold this is really important something greater than Jonah is here see the great sign of Jesus's power wouldn't simply be healing the blind and the lame and turning water into wine and calming the seas. As impressive as all those miracles were, the great sign would be his rising from the dead, defeating death for everyone who believes in him. 
Wicked Gentiles. Think about this, this, this contrast. Wicked Gentiles, not the people of God, repented when this hateful prophet named Jonah spoke to them. But the Jewish leaders surrounding Jesus, who were supposedly the people of God, who had a Jesus who loved them in contrast to a Jonah who hated them, the, the, this Jesus who loved them proclaimed to them God's word and they did not repent. And therefore Jesus said, you will be condemned. Salvation, they would realize, would not come through their law. And on the other side of the equation, salvation wouldn't come through a militaristic Messiah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And no one was going to stop his plan. Look at the parallels between Jonah's prayer and Jesus' life with me. Jonah was cast into the deep, and, and, and by so being cast, he saved the lives of unworthy sailors. Jesus was nailed to the cross and saved all who would trust in him, unworthy as they are. Upon a life I did not live, we sang it this morning. Jonah was figuratively cast into Sheol, and Jesus was literally cast into the grave. When Jonah was in the, the belly of Sheol, as he said, he, he was heard by God in his watery tomb. And the Bible says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jonah said, I'm driven away from your sight in the belly of the fish. But on the cross, Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet in the end, both were delivered by God. Jonah, in the end of his prayer, we find him worshiping because God brought him out of the pit. And the Psalms say, that God would not let His Holy One, meaning Jesus, see corruption in the grave. So three days after Jesus was crucified, angels sat on a tombstone and they said this, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, for He has risen. We've talked about how God revealed His sovereignty, His power over everything throughout this tale. But I want to propose to you that the greatest evidence of His power, the greatest evidence of God's orchestrating hand in life, is how He used the story of a stubborn, rebellious prophet who lived hundreds of years before Christ to paint a picture of the Son's redemption for all who would be saved. May we never forget this truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I mentioned earlier how that Jonah, realizing what he had done, could think of no 
more just or more logical option than simply to die, simply to perish. And he never, ever thought going into the cold waves of that ocean that God would provide a rescue. Never knew it. He was swallowed by a fish and he thought, surely this is it. That's all, that's all there is for me. He never knew that that tomb would become the entrance to life for him. And there's many of us here who have had the joyful experience of realizing that there was no hope for us and that all we could ever hope to do now is perish. And yet we found that out of nowhere, God provided an incredible means of rescue. Out of nowhere, our life, the Bible describes it as being hidden in Christ. Like that great fish swallowed Jonah, our life was swallowed up by the life of the risen Lord Jesus. And, and, and though it cost us everything, though in a sense we perished in that tomb, it was the entrance for us of real and lasting life. And so what a great moment for those of you who are believers to, to reflect with simple elements We've said it before, this is just a wafer. This is just a little thimble full of juice. But what they represent, the covenant, the power, the promises, the salvation of God. To this morning when we take these, I want one thought rolling through your mind. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And He has accomplished it through the most unlikely of means. Only God, only a powerful, absolutely sovereign God could render life from brutal death. And that is exactly what he has done. He has let life flow out of the wounded hands and feet, the torn side, the, the, the ripped up back and the bleeding brow of Christ. Life flowed out as his, as his life ebbed away, it flowed to you and I. And then God raised him from the dead three days later to prove that death no longer has hold on us. Not only in some hereafter sense, but death has no hold on us as the people of God in this life. The Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, whom the law, uh, who have been set free by the law of the spirit of life. Let's remember that as we take these elements. Everybody say it with me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Say it. Now say it like you're actually saved and mean it. It's a little better. Can you do it one more time like you're really saved? Like, I mean, more than just Baptist saved, like you're really saved. Go ahead. Amen. Amen. That was rude to all my Baptist friends. I love Baptists. I love Baptists. I, I, I could have come up with a lot meaner denomination to pick on. but Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Can we give thanks for the broken body of the Lord Jesus? God, who would have thought salvation would come to us from your pain, from your agony, from your sorrow, from your suffering? And yet it did. Yet it did. We were on the brink of death and you died. We were on the brink of discussion, destruction. And Lord, you, you suffered. And through your suffering, you have brought us life. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Amen. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the spilling of your blood. You told us back in Isaiah chapter 1, you said, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll soon be white as snow. God, we had no idea that reasoning with you and negotiating with you would involve not our punishment, not our death, but the death and the punishment and the spilling of the blood of your own Son. So, Father, we thank you for that. What an unexpected mercy. What an what a amazing blessing you have bestowed upon us with every drop of blood that, that spilled from your Son's body. We thank you for this mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you would place your hands in the receiving position, I want to read. I, I always try to select these benedictions from Scripture and, and ones that really say what I tried to say in the message in a very concise way, and this is what, what the Lord gave me for this week. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.